Adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World from A16Z. Olivia, what do we have going on today? Allow me to introduce you to a man who believes improvisation is key to developing new and impactful drugs, Greg Verdine. I think that as much as anything, that improvisational instinct and capability, the confidence to improvise is extremely useful in biotech, especially when you're trying to do something that's never been done before. Greg's a serial entrepreneur and thought leader in new therapeutic modalities like stapled peptides. His achievements are towering from academia to biotech. But this is not just a tale of scientific breakthroughs, but also about a remarkable human being. I grew up in this, the Pine Barrens in southern New Jersey, in an area where actually very few people w- went to college. And when I was five years old, my father had a tragic accident where he became a quadriplegic and was unable to, to work at that point. And despite his mother's dreams, college wasn't in Greg's plan at first. But Destiny, or at least his high school counselor, had different ideas. Greg found himself accepted into St. Joseph's College, where he discovered his love for chemistry. Greg's story is about scientific ingenuity, defying the mantra of undruggable targets. His improvisational spirit helps him continue to push the boundaries, just like his dad did. It's a reminder that sometimes our roots shape our journey in ways we could never imagine. Beautifully said, Olivia. Now join us as we gather some sage advice for the biotech builder from someone who has truly been there and done that. Greg Verdine. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. And you're listening to BioEats World for May 16Z. Welcome to this special episode of BioEats World. I'm joined by my partner, Jorge Conde, and we're excited to be sharing some exciting news with our listeners. Today, we are announcing that Greg Verdine, who is here with us in our Menlo Park studio, is joining the A16Z Bio and Health team as a venture partner and a special advisor to A16Z Bio portfolio companies. Welcome, Greg. Well, thank you, Vanita. I can't express uh, how excited I am to be joining this team and to really working together with you and Jorge and the rest of the uh, Bio and Health team to really do something big in, in healthcare and change the world and uh, have some fun while doing it as well. <laughs> there we go. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Greg's career, I'd like to just share a few highlights that also reflect why we're so thrilled to work with Greg as an advisor to our companies. 
Greg is highly regarded for having moved seamlessly between roles as an academic scientist and leader at Harvard for nearly three decades, a biotech entrepreneur and CEO, venture partner at venture funds, and company executive and leader. He's a true thought leader in this field of new therapeutic modalities, having developed in several entirely new classes of therapeutics, including stapled peptides, which are currently in clinical development and have received great attention for their ability to drug targets previously considered undruggable. Greg is a serial entrepreneur and a consummate bio builder. He's founded and co-founded a number of successful biotech companies, including Ananta, Gloucester, Wave Life Sciences, Eleven Biotherapeutics, Warp Drive, Aileron, Fog Pharma, and LifeMine, where he remains CEO. No stranger to building value for patients and shareholders, he's pioneered the development of multiple treatments for oncology and other diseases, and many of his companies have reached significant scale. His educational background and academic background is also equally impressive. He earned a PhD in chemistry from Columbia, an undergraduate in chemistry from St. Joseph's. We're going to hear a little more about how he how he navigated his own academic journey, served as an NIH postdoctoral fellow at MIT and Harvard, all before becoming faculty, of course, and has won several notable awards, including the AACR Award for Excellence in Chemistry and Cancer Research and the Nobel Laureate Signature Award. So, Greg, welcome to BioEats World and welcome to our team. Thank you, Vanita. I'm feeling very humbled by that introduction, <laughs> but uh, but I'm grateful for it nevertheless. So let's start by learning more just about the arc of your career. When you were, let's go all the way back. Was it was it preordained that you would become a chemist? Well, I think it was far from preordained. I grew up in this, the Pine Barrens in southern New Jersey in an area where actually very few people w went to college. And when I was five years old, my father had a tragic accident where he became a quadriplegic and was unable to, to work at that point, went away to the, to, for rehabilitation for a couple of years, and then came back and began trying to decide what he was going to do with his life. Uh, and what he decided to do was to work with his then seven-year-old son to build boats and to build vans, to do rebuild cars, and et cetera, et cetera. So my early upbringing was very much from a rural community and a really kind of mechanically oriented uh, early childhood. You were a builder from the very beginning. I was a builder. And what I have to really give my dad a lot of credit for is he had this amazing uh, inventive character. He would invent wheelchair lifts and ways of driving the boat that had never been invented before. And he was a master of improvisation. And I think that as much as anything, that improvisational instinct and capability, the confidence to improvise is extremely useful in biotech, especially when you're trying to do something that's never been done before, where there's no playbook. Improvisation is crucial for it. So I give my dad a lot of credit for getting that into me at a quite an early age. What's the through line from being, you know, inventive, working with your hands, working on, you know, boats and vans uh, to becoming a chemist? Yeah, that, that's an interesting sort of leap. Right. So uh, what happened in, in my case is that my father was so interested to work with me that he started keeping me home from school so that we could work together. And uh, my mother 
discovered this. My mother uh, had decided that I was going to be out of her four children and was going to be the one who would be kind of academically uh, oriented. And she uh, decided after she learned that my dad was keeping me home from school to ship me off to live with the vice principal of my high school, just far enough away from my dad mm-hmm. that he couldn't draw me in. And so about 40, 45 miles away. And uh, that person, whose name is Josh Miles, was a was a was an intellectual, and I'd never been in an intellectual environment before. He also listened to Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra, and virtually instead of country music, which is what my my dad listened to. So I had this entirely different uh, life. But still, the goal was going to be when I got done high school to go back and work with my dad. That that was the intention. At some point, my high school guidance counselor got wind of the fact that I didn't plan to go to college, and he decided to do something about it. So uh, I, uh, I received in the mail one day an, an acceptance to St. Joe's College in Philadelphia. <laughs> I, I didn't apply to St. Joe's College. I thought this is really a terrible accident <laughs> that I had received somebody else's acceptance. Uh, and, and in classic fashion, I was quite a procrastinator then. I just decided to oh, sit on this for a few days and figure <laughs> out what to do. And then I received in the mail an offer of a full scholarship uh, because I couldn't pay for college. Mm-hmm. So I, I ended up defying my father uh, and going to college. And I had no idea what you major in in college. So I majored in English literature. I, f- I figured I can speak English and... <laughs> <laughs> and you could read. And, and read I could literature. read. I, I could write. <laughs> and then I found out how much I hate writing. That just writing reams and reams and reams of stuff. So I, I had to find a new plan. And during that time, I might have been the only English major who was taking organic chemistry. And I was preternaturally good. Mm-hmm. in the lab because my dad had taught me how to build things and how to assemble, how to, you know, when to push hard, when not to push hard. And so that's what took me into chemistry. It was actually the manual mechanical part of chemistry that took me into it. And and I ended up working, my boss's name is George Nelson. He's quite famous. His, his PhD work is in every organic chemistry textbook, but he was at St. Joe's College, believe it or not. Hmm. You know, lightning struck. Wow. I also just, I think it's so, it's inspiring and um, notable that in some ways your building instinct was born from human illness. And um kind of this need right in front of you that, you know, to help your dad and to help help him be able to do things that he could no longer do in the context of an illness. And that's been another through line, it seems, through your career that you've always wanted to focus on, you know, realizing a patient impact that would be profound, that would scratch a need that no one else could scratch. So tell us a little bit about that. You've sort of made it your mission to focus on drugging the undruggable as much as you know, that phrase is now overused. When you yeah. started using it, it was it was still novel. And to discover new therapies for, for really intractable conditions. How did you, what was the next phase that led you from organic chemistry to therapeutics? From St. Joe's, I went to get a PhD at Columbia, working under a very famous natural products chemist named Koji Nakanishi. And I I figured out how an anti-cancer drug that was widely used called mitomycin C, how it actually works. 
And that was really, you know, that was really remarkable to me that you could take this mystery that it had existed and basically do what we do, you know, all the stuff that you do in the lab and you could solve this mystery. And I found that to be incredibly addictive. So from there, I went to postdoc. I realized I needed to learn some biology. And so I went to postdoc with Chris Walsh at Harvard Medical School. Well, first at MIT and then Harvard Medical School. But along the way, actually, when I was a third-year graduate student, I got a call from Harvard asking would I be interested to apply for a, a job in the chemistry department at Harvard. I hadn't even applied for graduate school to the chemistry department at Harvard. It was incredibly intimidating, but I decided to go take the interview anyway. So I got together some proposals, went and took this interview uh, at Harvard. And they were, I think they were very intrigued because what I decided to do was to do stuff that no chemist would do because it, at that time it was over 40 years since the, anyone had gotten tenure from within in the chemistry department at Harvard. Everyone assumed that you would not get tenure. So I said, well, if that's, if that's the way they're going to treat it, I should go do the crazy things that I really want to do. So in those days, you know, Vanita and Jorge, uh, it was unimaginable for an assistant professor to go start a company. So I knew that was out of the question. However, what, what I was encouraged to do was consult. And I began consulting for Hoffman LaRoche. And, and Hoffman LaRoche did something really remarkable. They built the first uh, compound uh, retrieval system, robotic compound retrieval system, and the first ultra-high throughput screening system. Mm-hmm. What year are we talking about? We're probably talking about 1992, 1993. So the dawn of ultra-high throughput mm-hmm. uh, sequencing. And they took a large number of targets that they had chosen and took them all a you know, million dollars a screen through this ultra, first ever ultra-high throughput screening. And they discovered that the vast majority, well, what they got out of it was zero. They didn't get a single high-quality hit out of this entire $35 million exercise. And that was when people first started um, talking about, oh, certain targets are undruggable. Mm-hmm. That seemed to me, you know, to, the, to an improviser, okay, if it's undruggable, figure out how to drug it. They're very clear. This is an opportunity for an improviser to invent their way through this problem. And it was at that time that we're also beginning to learn a lot of new biology. So this gap between what biology, the pace of progress in biology was raging and the pace of progress in kind of interventional science of small molecules, biologic, was flat virtually no progress, really. Uh, So I decided that that really is an area that I could really sink my teeth into. And the first thing to do was actually brand it and to say, okay, uh, you know, all all of the medicinal chemists in industry were saying, those targets are undruggable. I wanted to poke a stick in the eye of all that and to say, okay, well, let's, we should drug the undruggable. And you're right, Vanita, it's become, it's become a kind of a mantra without a meaning in some cases now because a lot of the efforts in that area aren't really honest about doing something that helps to bridge the actionability gap between biology and interventional science. So I decided 
to be true to myself, whatever I do in this area, I'm going to be honest about it. And I'm going to throw down a gauntlet to other folks in this area to say, no, re-drugging the druggable is not drugging the undruggable. We have to be honest with ourselves and say that you're going to have to set out to change medicine in whatever you do. So I was kind of stuck with that <laughs> because I had to live by that standard uh, as well. And so everything I've sought to do in my entrepreneurial life, you know, since the early 90s has really been focused on different ways of bridging the actionability gap in medicine. You're describing a lot of different gaps, yes. right? Gaps between what we could do in chemistry, yeah. new knowledge and biology moving forward. Um, but there's another gap here where you, you're working in academia, right? You're at Harvard, you're consulting for Hoffman LaRoche. Industry here, as you're describing it in the early 90s, is making significant investments in advancing things like high throughput screening. Yeah. Where was the gap? Why was it necessary to do this in the form of a startup? Why be entrepreneurial versus going into industry and working with, an, with established infrastructure? Yeah, you know, at that period of time, industry, and, and this was one of my frustrations, they'd kind of thrown up their arms and just said, okay, this is the bin of targets that are druggable, and this is the bin of targets that are undruggable, and there are so many druggable targets, why would we even try to take on the challenge of, of drugging undruggable targets? And, and that was one thing, is there was a basically a, a really capitulation to the problem. And then number two, there was a tremendous something between you know, almost schadenfreude, I, you know, was kind of hoping that if someone went out to do something a little bit crazy that it wouldn't work. But the, the view of what was, what was drug-like and what was not drug-like was so stereotypical and narrow, narrowly constrained that if you went out to say, okay, you know what, I think peptides or nucleic acids are going to be the best way to get at this problem, that at that point, at least, Big Pharma did not have very much receptivity to these entirely new modalities. Now, now I think you know the, the Big Pharma has now embraced it, mm -hmm. and in fact, almost every major pharmaceutical company has a new modality group. But that's taken over 20 years to get there, and I was impatient, just as I am now. And I, and I thought in academics, you could like fly this under the radar screen, number one. You could begin laying the groundwork to, to, to figure out, first of all, are you barking up the wrong tree or not? Because it's all new stuff. You have to figure out whether, you, whether, whether there's a there there. So academics turned out to be a great place to do the very exploratory kinds of studies. And then, you know, a startup was just a much more receptive environment to actually getting a group of people who were not so uh, entrenched in this very standard stereotypical view about what's drug-like and what's not drug-like, that it felt like biotech was the right, really the right place to do that. Now, you know, we've, we sort of skated to where the puck is headed because now I think there, we're in an environment where, you know, the FDA is open to these kinds of things. You know, wonderful. at that time, even people were worried, well, how, how would the FDA look at these kinds of unusual... New modalities, you new mean. New modalities, mm -hmm. yeah. Or are we taking on risk that by, you know, even if you succeed, that there'll be regulatory risks. So I think pharma was looking at all of that and saying, well, we don't really want to go there. 
But, Jorge, uh, what kept happening, and you know this really well, is that that gap between progress in biology and progress in interventional science, that gap got wider and wider and wider and wider, such that many more targets think about what, you know, what I call the wall of shame in oncology, RAS, MYC, and beta-catenin, all three of them, known for years and years and years. And people, it was out there. I mean, talk about you know, our obligation to patients. You can't just say to patients, I'm sorry, that's a no-go zone, right? Things have really come around now to where there's a lot more uh, receptivity toward this. But, but the way I think about that gap and that widening gap is it's kind of like the supply and demand, right? So the demand is biology. It's unveiling all of this biology, but the supply was not fundamentally changing at all. And I've always thought that that gap was like a force, just like in economics. You have a gap between supply and demand. That gap's getting wider. And ultimately, the capital markets and investors came around to the idea that because that gap is so wide, there's a lot of force to it and a lot of really potential, not only to do great for people, but also to be rewarded uh, by it as well. So I've always looked at it with a kind of economic model, and we're still living in that model because that gap is still unacceptably wide. And that gap has a clinical corollary too, which is it's the clinical actionability gap, right? Those are now mutations that come up on every cancer patient's tumor genome sequence. And We are still in the position where for most of those patients, we have to say, yep, we see that mutation, but it's not yet actionable for you. Um, And so that clinical actionability gap is the supply-demand mismatch between biology and modality. And it's also usually, usually such gaps are phenomenal value creation opportunities. We couldn't agree more. Yeah. If you think about where should we eventually get to, we, sh- we should get to the stage at which, you know, number one, we're in cancer, we're hitting the drivers of cancer really hard, but we're also hitting the resistance pathways that come up. And then on the other side, we're stimulating the immune response. So I think we have to get a lot faster at discovering drugs. In traditional small molecule kind of bottom-up drug discovery, you're talking about generally three years from the selection of a target to having a tool molecule that you can use in an animal. That is unacceptably slow. Anything you can do to increase the arsenal uh, will have massive outsized impact in oncology. Yeah. Are there other disease areas where you think we have that same massive mismatch or massive gap between being target-rich and tool-poor? You know, if you look at now the emerging data, in fact, there was a study just uh, reported on, you know, sequencing a large number of primates. And we are in this phase where we're going to learn a great deal about the drivers of disease, uh, even, you know, relatively uh, diseases that have relatively small patient populations. And we'll have really high quality data that gives us a real reason to believe that if you could drug that target. To me, also, the rare disease area is going to have an explosion of opportunity. And we need to figure out how to get to end of, maybe not end of one therapeutics, but maybe you know end, end of a few thousand mm-hmm. um, in a much more capital-efficient way. All of that, if we can just become a lot more efficient at drug discovery, then we can really think about 
rare disease therapeutics that are not priced in such a way that they'll eventually uh, tax the, the, the healthcare system so much that they'll be self-defeating. Mm-hmm. Greg, your first few companies you started you know, while you were still at Harvard and benefited from this sort of unique environment that you just described where you could do some of the very early work before deciding to roll it into a company and then go back to doing more really, really early work. And for your most recent companies, you actually stepped into the founder CEO seat. Talk a little bit about what drove you to do that and what the impact of doing that was for those companies. This is like this kind of journey of (laughs) self-discovery, I have to say. You know, in the early days, I was consulting and I was learning so much. And those learnings ended up being really valuable for company formation because I could decide what could I go out and do where I'm not competing with the whole pharmaceutical industry, but where I had a clear lane lane of something. So uh, early on, it was consulting. And then after that, I began founding my own companies and... I just I learned a lot about you know what company formation looks like and and how venture capital works and and so on and then I started working directly as a venture partner because I realized I needed to get much closer to the decision making uh, process but I was still in academics and then very quietly I uh, the first one was uh, Wave Life Sciences where. I went out, raised all the money uh, to get the company up and running. Of course, I did that very quietly while I was still on the faculty at Harvard. And then when I founded Warp Drive Bio, that one felt like they're actually, and I, I don't mean this to sound arrogant, I think it was just the way it is. I'm trained as a chemical biologist, so I'm very, you know, broadly, very broadly trained. And I taught a course at Harvard together with Vicky Sato, where we invited in people to co- talk about the most emerging stuff that was going on. So I got this tremendous education by teaching a course at Harvard. So then when I started Warp Drive, I thought, if I don't you know, really jump in, this might not actually happen. So I took a two-year sabbatical from Harvard. During those two years, I still taught my course. I still had my lab. I, I just worked. Yeah, so it's interesting because what, where, where the sort of the entire industry has evolved is if you really want, if you want to launch something truly novel, in many cases, the best vehicle for doing that is a startup that gets in, you know, individually funded to go after that sort of moonshot idea yeah, I think that really continues to be the case. And I don't see that changing, actually. It's probably going to get more, even more uh, polarized in that sense. The really, the, the radical innovation is going to continue to happen in venture-backed uh, companies. And in that way, you know, I look at the mission of life science venture capital as being absolutely sacred because there are many, many things that just wouldn't happen uh, I also credit, again, the FDA for having the open willingness to work with companies and to really help to shepherd these new things you know, in, into clinical development. They're, they're both critical. But the one thing pharma is not good at is doing horizontally integrated types of exercises. So if you look at LifeMind, which is discovering you know, new medicines from fungi, taking advantage of the fact that fungi are nature's 
you know, most powerful medicinal chemist, that starts with fungal strains, growing them up, isolating their DNA, sequencing their DNA, using data science to interpret all of the information and, and, and then search for drugs in genomic space. Like, even all of that is something I can't imagine happening in a large pharmaceutical company at all. That's already too horizontally integrated. And that's just the beginning because after, after you've found that drug in genomic space, you actually have to retrieve it from the microorganism. Then you have to optimize it. Then you have to take it in. So that kind of horizontal integration exercise is something that I believe is unlikely ever to happen in a large pharmaceutical company. So what you're describing is this incredible ability for, in some way, startups to be creatively unconstrained but they are incredibly resource constrained. Yes. And so one of the things that we struggle with as early stage investors, uh, that entrepreneurs struggle with as you know early stage company builders in biotech is how to figure out the scope of the problem you wanna tackle in the startup. And just to give you the canonical yeah. challenge that most of these early stage companies have, it's a combination of how much do I invest in a platform technology versus how much do I invest in advancing you know, therapeutic programs forward, yeah. which of course is the end goal for most therapeutics companies. Yeah. And when I think about both of those questions, the, the other challenge that they have is, what problems should I focus on? What diseases should I go after? What are the right indications? What are the right targets? And I think this is the canonical challenge for any entrepreneur who's looking to start a therapeutics company. You've Especially started many. a platform. Yeah. Company. Well, you've really put the arrow right in the bullseye of, you know, what, where the early judgment in the company really has to go. So my fundamental belief is that these kinds of binary, I've done a couple, Gloucester Pharmaceuticals, Vanita mentioned earlier. I mean, we got the, an HDAC inhibitor approved by the FDA. I'm very proud of that. But I can't see myself doing that kind of company because, again, it's, it's in the future because it's so binary. The real trick is how you select a platform that's going to have value, how you identify what the killer application is for that early on, and then how you navigate adaptively the art. Because if, if you're taking one of these platform builds forward, it's full of rabbit holes. And you can't stay out of those rabbit holes. There's no way to, you kind of sometimes you have to get into a rabbit hole to realize that, it's, that there's a rabbit hole there. And so you have this fundamental thing that you, you need to get in and out of rabbit holes as fast as possible and not be paralyzed by decision-making. There's another thing, big pharma, they get paralyzed by decision-making. So early on, you need to say, okay, we're going to set out to do this. We think we know the way to get there. And you put yourself into a position where you're, where that's actually not doable right now. And so you have a little bit of pressure from uh, putting yourself into a situation where we don't know how to do that right now. And you have to get a team that's really, really comfortable with that. And what I found is a big driver is to pick not some incremental kind of thing, but to pick a big world-changing problem early on and to say, yeah, we're going to build a platform, but we're going to deploy it on, on this problem. So I think actually being resource constrained is a good thing. 
because it forces you to really, you know, make decisions and and we never have enough information to make decisions. That's why this forward backward looking is so so critical and you need to build teams of people that are prepared to change, you know, in a second. To once you know that something is not going to be a productive path, you have to back out of that as fast as possible. So I think the capital constraints are a good thing, mm-hmm. um, but it does require a unique sociology in the in the company that you have to build that from from day one. And there are certain phenotypes of people that are uncomfortable with the constantly changing nature. Of, of this, it's kind of like going down the rapids, you know, you kind of know where you want to go, or it's like Lewis and Clark on, you know, expedition to the Pacific Ocean, like, you kind of have a rough idea about, about, about where you need to go, but you don't know exactly what you're going to encounter along the way. And I love that. That's why when we get to the stage where the company is a clinical stage company and is, is going to you know, do, do do commercialization and all that kind of a thing. I'm just completely ill-suited to doing that because I'm so uh, addicted to the process of finding your way through the rapids. So part of the reason we were so delighted to work with you, Greg, is that you do have this extraordinary enthusiasm for new technologies, new modalities, and platform biotech companies, which come with all of the risks that Jorge outlined and that you you eloquently just talked through. Platform companies are sometimes hard to define. In principle, they solve for a challenge you outlined earlier as well, which is that we need to bend the cost curve yeah. on development in our space. Yeah. How do you define a platform company? What counts as a true platform uh, biotech company? I, I love this question because a platform company should have an accelerated learning cycle. In other words, you do something the first time and it's going to be a little slow because you're looking, you're finding all those rabbit holes. And then, you know, the second product should be twice as fast or three times as fast. So that's number one. And number two, at least in the interventional molecule or modality space, it could be CAR-T. You know, the first time you do a CAR-T, it's going to happen at a certain rate. The second time, there are certain other areas, let's say cancer metabolism. That's a theme, but that's not a platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think in some way for me, the platform has to be the drug, whatever that is, whether it's a virus or a cell or a small molecule or some, or a peptide or or you name it, or a protein, the platform has to be that because that's really what enables you to, to gain speed. A platform company really has to have that accelerated learning now, one of the attractions for me working with A16Z is A16Z has come from this you know, area of computational data science, computational work, tech, and that's very clearly an area where you can gain acceleration, where you can gain risk reduction, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And knowing how to integrate that with drug discovery is something where you, you really need to have a great understanding of both sides of the equation, of both you know how you use computers uh, to discover drugs or to discover opportunities in, let's say, to find new indications that weren't uh, obvious before, and then having control over the modality that's going to get you 
to that. So I'm really pretty obsessed with this right now that drug discovery has to get faster. And cheaper. And cheaper, and it has to get more targeted. The idea that we are treating people with drugs that go into every tissue and every organ when it's actually the target is just, you know, the pancreas or, or whatever. For the future, I think medicines are going to have to become a lot more targeted. A third tension that a lot of founders of early stage companies have yeah. is how they approach uh, partnerships and get access to resources from large incumbents. And there's a really interesting tension there because at the risk of oversimplifying it, there's a tension between generating belief by incumbents and in whatever a novel yeah. startups company has, which sometimes is at odds with generating excitement because something that's believable sometimes might seem less exciting something that's cra crazy exciting may not be believable. In your mind, not every founder is Greg Verdine, not every founder has done this 10 times and generated sort of the credibility with the industry or with prospective partners. How would a, an early stage first time founder really think about that balance of, of how and when and best, how best to approach prospective partners uh, and how to navigate this belief, excitement, tension? And I'm probably on the extreme end of this that I believe that companies like Fog Pharma or LifeMine that have worked so hard to figure out an entire area of science and medicine that they should not eventually be reduced to a minuscule ownership in, in the products of their uh, hard work. And so that if you look at Fog Pharma, for example, I said from day one, and my board agreed with it, that we will not partner this under any circumstance. Not under any, we will not partner it until it gets to the stage where we have so much leverage in those partnership discussions and where pharma really has something very significant to offer. So we drew a line in the sand, and for that reason, the company hasn't done a partner, partnership yet, and we may or may not. And that's where having investors who are willing to say, okay, we agree with that. We think you should own 100% of that drug, or down the road, if you want to partner 50% of it, that's fine, but that you shouldn't get into a validating partnership because they're often very dilutive. In, in terms of the long, the, you know, what really matters is the denominator in value of the company down the road when, when you've gotten there. We should um, note that you had air quotes around the word validating. <laughs> <laughs> right, air quotes, thank you. I had air quotes because I've seen many of these validating partnerships end up being a kind of a poison pill mm -hmm. um, because it's so hard to discover one drug. Now, there are certain aspects to the platform model where if you can get that platform up and running at speed and it's efficient, then you can partner it. Uh, but it needs to be up at speed and it really needs to be efficient. And I'm excited about that model. Down the road, I would say that I probably underemphasized that in the past. But any company going forward that's a platform company they will also uh, aspire to get up to the kind of speed and scale that allows you to do partnerships while keeping your most important asset because there are, there are certain values to partnerships. And then, then, Jorge, it really comes down to whom do you partner with? Couldn't agree more. Greg, when you're not inventing new modalities, 
where where can you be found? <laughs> well, there are at least six months of the year where the the water uh, is warm enough in in Boston uh, to be able to go out on the water, and so I have a boat. And that boat kept me sane during COVID uh, that I could just take my boat and uh, mm -hmm. go to Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket or something like that. Uh, Full the, circle. Back to back to back. Yeah, to back to boats. Back to building boats. Uh, after building boats with my dad, I said, I will never, ever own a boat. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, as so many of us do, when we get a little bit older, we uh, begin taking on some of the attributes of our parents that we said we would <laughs> never take on. So uh, guilty as charged. <laughs> I, I would say six months is an unvalidated data point. The yeah. water's freezing yeah. like nine <laughs> months out of the year. That's exactly right. So excited to work with you, Greg, and um, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks, Vinita and, and Jorge. This has been a really fun conversation, and uh, I'm really looking forward to, to ideation, to building, to hiring great people together and, uh, and changing the world together. Thanks. Amazing. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.